Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. What is food? It's nourishment, it's comfort, it's culture, it's art. For millions of people, it's not something you waste much time thinking about. You eat what you've always eaten, what everyone else around you eats, what you can afford. For others, every bite is a careful, conscious choice, motivated by the drive to be thin, to impress your friends, or to do the right thing. In 2018, whatever our motivations, most of us live at a vast remove from the places and the ways our food is produced. We meet it gleaming and uniform on the shelves of our supermarkets. It's cheap and it's plentiful. Why look a gift horse or cow or a pig or chicken in the mouth? Here's why. While we slept, the farms that produce our food have grown and morphed and metastasized into something worse than sinister, something that, if you look too closely at it, might just put you off your dinner. With every meal we eat, we're making ethical choices that define us and shape the future of the planet. How long and on what grounds can we justify looking the other way? I'm here today with Jonathan Safran Foer. He's justly celebrated as a novelist for books including Everything is Illuminated and Here I Am. But he's here today to discuss Eating Animals. It's a new documentary narrated by Natalie Portman and based on Jonathan's book of the same name. Welcome to Think Again. Thanks for having me. What year did Eating Animals come out? Remind me. Oof. 2009, I think. And Does I, that sound about right? I, that does yeah. sound about right. And I read it then. I think my child was one year old or so around that time. I know that. And you had just, what motivated you to write the book was that you were about to have a child? or you Yeah, just so my, my first son was born in 2006, Okay, um, which is about when I started writing the book. And my, I have a second son who was born in 2009. And how were you eating at that time before, you know, huh. what, what was your relationship to food at that point? So my relationship to food was probably as I would still describe it, which is complicated. My habits were very complicated. I would swing back and forth between, I mean, I guess veganism at one extreme and just eating any last thing at the other extreme. Right. And I had what felt like strong instincts, but they were uninformed and very hard to articulate. You know, I've noticed that a lot of people have that same kind of relationship to food that kind of sense that something's not quite right without knowing what it is that isn't right. I know it's definitely not great for animals. I'm pretty sure it's not great for the environment. I think it's maybe not super for human health. There's like mm -hmm. antibiotics and stuff like that, but I don't know. And I have a hard time putting it into words, especially when I feel confronted. You know, that just the subject of meat is so sensitive. It's just so, so easy for it to become contentious. I just notice a sort of like cognitive veil that descends when you talk to people about food habits, especially when you start bringing in difficult 
ethical questions where many people will just sort of like squirm away like mercury. You can you can feel them saying, yeah, yeah, you know, I know, but I don't, I kind of don't want to know. Well, I don't know that food is unique in that. You know, <laughs> right, it, right. <laughs> um, I have a lot of cognitive veils myself. You know, if we were to talk about giving to charity, for example, I'd get squirmy real quick. I feel squirmy when I pass a homeless person on the street. Honesty often makes me a little bit squirmy. Sure. Um, but food is slightly different for a couple of reasons. One, unlike those other ethical realms, there's something about it that m makes us sensitive, but it's also been sort of presented to us in a way that highlights those sensitivities. So there are a lot of ways one could talk about meat or pose the question of meat, right? right. Like, is meat murder? That's the simplest one. That was PETA's strategy for years and years and years. If you were to go onto the streets of New York City and ask people, is meat murder? First of all, you'd get a lot of different opinions. Right. And probably the, the most like popular opinion would be like, well, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but um, you'd also get people f becoming aggressive, like really quickly. Defensively if, so, they just mm -hmm. don't want to hear it. Yeah. Or they feel accused yeah. of something. You could also pose the question as, do you think it's right to have a food system that is the most destructive thing that humans do to the environment without it needing to be? Or right. do you think it's right to have a food system in which animal suffering is part of the business model and doesn't have to be that way? Basically, if you describe factory farming, right. you don't find disagreement and you don't find aggressiveness or defensiveness. You find people saying like, yeah, obviously that's, there's got to be something better than that. So one of the things that I've had a hard time with myself as an eater and then as a writer of this, of eating animals, was like how to just reframe the conversation so that it reflects both what the world is like, not what a philosophical hypothetical might be like. Right. Is meat murder is a philosophical hypothetical. Talking about the actual destructiveness of factory farming is, is what the world is like. But that also shines a light on just how broadly we agree rather than what I think are these very, very tiny slices of disagreement. I mean, what we have and what your book and what the, what the documentary shows is we have this gigantic apparatus at this point. I mean, the factory farms themselves are these massive chambers of horror. They are a black box in the sense that now there are these ag-gag orders, so people can't really talk about what goes on in there. You can't really film in there. We see people sort of chasing the the camera crew around even during your documentary, but I think the ag-gag orders are worse now. And we have the U.S. Department of Agriculture very much complicit, very much in, involved with big meat <laughs> in such a way that it seems very hard to untie this knot. It's actually extremely easy <laughs> to untie the knot. Okay. I mean, it depends what knot you're talking about. Are you talking about the well, knot the, of information or are you yeah, talking about the knot of the system? The knot of the system. So like this, to actually get to a place where like those who want to eat meat are eating it in a way that doesn't destroy the environment, that isn't based on cruelty to animals. I mean, of all the knots in the world right now, and it's a naughty world, K-N-O-T-T, -T, not, not naughty. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, um, it's, it's probably it's that, that too. too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wish there were more of that, and less of the other. But of all the knots in the world, this is truly the easiest to untie. You know, how do you untie the knot of, I don't know, the Middle East, right? How do you untie the knot of gun violence? 
how do you untie the knot of the question of like immigration, right? These are things about all of which I have very strong feelings, but I would have to say well, it's not as simple as like opening the gates to every human being who wants to come into America. Right. It's not as simple as eliminating one kind of gun or even trying to eliminate all guns because we're not going to be able to do that. Actually, the gun situation is an interesting analogy because there you have a powerful organization, the NRA, which is, you could liken that to Big Meat and mm -hmm. the USDA, but you also have a population that is very much ideologically complicit in this, has a vested interest in gun ownership in America. Whereas, as you say, most people can agree when shown a video of a factory farm floor that they're, they don't want that and that they don't want to eat that. Not only that, but if you ask me, how do we get the guns out of the hands of bad people. It's really complicated, especially <laughs> given you know just the volume of guns that are presently in the hands of bad people. How do we get ha you know McDonald's hamburgers out of everyone's hands? Well, we start with ourselves. We just don't pick them up. It's like right. really that simple. And we teach our kids, and we have it be a conversation that's alive as it as it really is on like high school campuses and college campuses. You know, just by pausing at the um, grocery store before you put whatever you put into the cart or pausing when at a restaurant before ordering, you don't, you don't have to say, Hey, from this date forward, I will be a vegetarian. Right. It's more like at this meal that's presently in front of me, what do I want? What do I value? And I understand when some people say at this meal, that's right in front of me, I want to eat a steak. Like I'm in an amazing restaurant. It's my birthday. I'm surrounded by friends or I've traveled halfway around the world. This person has invited me into his home yeah. and he has spent you know, his limited resources and time preparing this meal for me. I think right now this is the thing to do. I completely get that. But I think if people were being honest with themselves, when I've done my own kind of, kind of a, like inventory of meals that are important, there just aren't that many situations in which it really matters to us. I find myself asking this of people all the time or talking about it. Like, when does meat really matter to you? So maybe it matters That's an to interesting you, way to put it, yeah. On holidays, <laughs> maybe it matters to you on family occasions, maybe it matters to you when you go to a, a really nice restaurant. I think if most people were to do that like very personal math, right. They would probably come up with like I don't know, 20 meals a month at most, 10 meals a month. If people only ate meat when it really mattered to them, we would solve this problem. We would completely dismantle the system. We would be able to have food that is healthier, more humane, environmentally sustainable, and affordable. And I want to come back to affordability, but it's very interesting, this idea of it, when does it really matter to you? That kind of lit up the circuitry in my brain. I'm going to use myself here as a test case guinea pig. I mean, because I'm as much, I don't know, this is as complex for me as I think it is for everyone. First of all, your book, when I read it, made an enormous impact on me. Like I... I wasn't really open to hearing too much about the food industry from, for whatever reason, at that age, I was open to literary influences. And I knew you from Everything is Illuminated. And I was like, I like his writing. I want to see what he has to say about this. And so it shed light on a world that I knew very little about. And it took a while, but it planted a seed that I was being more, much more careful after that. I wasn't buying Tyson chicken and so on. And then eventually I ended up being a pescatarian. My wife and I kind of looked at each other one day and we were like, we just can't do this anymore. We don't, we can't parse 
what's available on the supermarket shelves. We don't really understand or have the time or the inclination to do the research on every single restaurant we go to, where they're sourcing their meat from, etc. Let's just be pescatarians. Now, there's problems with fish fishing as well that one has to look into. But, but I mean, where I'm at at this point, though, it's like I will eat. You know, we have this clause that's like if we're abroad, we want to eat the special food of Mexico or wherever we might be or on a special occasion. But even there, I'm thinking, even there it becomes a slippery slope because I'm thinking, what does that mean to really need that? We've decided that's an important part of our quality of life or something. Mm -hmm. But like, is it worth it? I don't know. I, I find this really <laughs> difficult. Like, you know, I have been an on and off vegetarian since I was nine. I spent, let's say, three years researching and writing the book. I spent a couple of years after that talking about it, giving readings from it. And I still find it really not perplexing, but like um, vexing. It's a struggle. And I have different parts of me. You know, there, there's a part of me that wants to just like bang my fist on the table and say, this is wrong, wrong, wrong. Like Killing animals, period. Yeah. Yeah. It's just wrong. And why are we talking about it in these ways as if it weren't wrong? Then there's another part of me that went to, for example, um, Bill Nyman's farm in California. And um, I thought, you know, there aren't going to be any cows in the world if people don't eat beef. So if I were a cow, you could say it's a, a totally naive <laughs> thought experiment, but it's, I can't imagine the person who wouldn't have this thought experiment. If I were a cow, would I choose this? And I thought, yeah, I think I would choose this. A, li a decent life. A decent a life. More or less painless. Yeah. Death. Eating yeah. the kinds of foods that I want to eat, engaging in the behaviors that I want to engage in, and then being slaughtered probably painlessly or fairly close to painlessly. How, how does slaughter happen in these places? I mean, Nyman and then the other guy, the turkey farmer, um, Frank. Frank Reese, yeah. yeah. So slaughter is, is one of the rare things that has gotten better with time. And it's a, it's a shame that so much attention is focused on it. When people think about the cruelty of eating meat, they almost always think about slaughter. And if you watch a video of the cruelty of eating meat, you'll see the slaughter because it's gross. But things that are gross visually, or things that I should say seem gross visually, doesn't suggest there's anything necessarily wrong with it. If I were to show my kids a video of like childbirth, human childbirth, they'd be like, oh my God, I never <laughs> want to see that again. Why does that ever have to happen? Right. Um, <laughs> the real suffering in farms is how the lives that animals are given. And, and in, in a way, even predating that is the bodies that they were given. You know, they've been bred to grow so huge on so quickly on so little food. Chickens have to be slaughtered around 35 days, which is to say in their adolescence, because left to live any longer, they, their bones literally couldn't support their body weight. Their bones start to break. Um, these are animals that have to be given antibiotics. We give um, seven times as many antibiotics to healthy animals as we do to sick humans. It's sort of a perfect storm of horror, right? I mean, we've got the, you're pumping them full of antibiotics, Animals that have been genetically bred in, in such a way that they can, yeah, as you say, barely stand up. The way that they're kept. So, you know, my re reflex is not to love the word horror because there's something about <laughs> extreme language okay. that can actually like let us off the hook. You know what I mean? Okay. Uh, there, this conversation wants to move toward extremes. Okay. Like it's a Holocaust or <laughs> you're a vegan or you're a hypocrite as opposed to 
like really going into it. Like that kind of language actually shuts down a conversation more than it, it opens okay. one up. Okay, so let's face it. Yeah, like so, calm directly mm-hmm. then, yeah. And it's not, it's not the whole truth. There are things about fine tree farms that are horrific. There are other animals who live in other farm situations where it's not horrific and where you would have a hard time noticing what was bad about it, even if there's plenty that's bad about it. So first of all, we should just make the distinction between factory farming and whatever the alternative is, which is like small farms, family farms. Right. When most people imagine a farm, they imagine, like, what do you imagine? If I were to say, what's a farm look like? Forget about having just read the book right. and seen the movie. No, but. right. I'm thinking about, yeah, I'm thinking about old McDonald and some happy geese running around. Grass, yeah. right? Like, I would think if this were a family barn, feud, a nice nine barn. out of 10 people would say grass, right? Right. And they would say if, a fence, picket fence of some kind. They would say sunshine. They would say maybe a lake or some kind of water supply. Animals moving around. A farmer He's probably wearing overalls, probably has like a pitchfork or a shovel. Right. Maybe knows the animals even as individuals, possibly. We hold though that image of a farm in our minds and it's comforting and it should be. Like that's good. If the world were like that, I wouldn't have written my book and we wouldn't be talking right now. The problem is 99%, more than 99% of the animals that are eaten in America are raised on factory farms. And a factory farm has nothing to do with what I just described. Right. So typically the animals are raised indoors. There's very little human presence at all. A human might go in to cull the dead animals. You know, It's all automated. The lighting is automated in such a way to confuse the animals about when it's day and night so mm-hmm. that they will do whatever preferred actions more quickly. Animals are given antibiotics, of course. Suffering is not an exception, but part of the business model. So the thing about factory farming is that any way you look at it, whatever perspective you come from, it's unappealing. Right. So I met someone the other day who was a vegetarian who really didn't care about animals at all. It just wasn't his thing. Mm-hmm. But the environmental toll of factory farming spoke to him. According to the United Nations, factory farming is one of the top two or three causes of every significant environmental problem on the planet locally and globally, from air pollution, water pollution, deforestation, loss of biodiversity. It produces more greenhouse gases than anything else and probably more than everything else put together. There's no good way of looking at the environmental effects right. of factory farming. In terms of animal welfare, there's nothing that we do now or have ever done in human history that's created more suffering So suffering is a word that might trigger a rolling of the eyes of some people who are listening to this. It's a word like horror. It's a word word like horror and also a word that when applied to animals can feel a little bit like flaky. I don't love animals. When I went to a farm farm sanctuary, it was one of the first visits that I made in my research because I just wanted to know what a cow was like, what a chicken was like. Like I I haven't had a lot of exposure to farm animals. And I didn't especially want to hang out with them. And I didn't feel a desire to like knit them sweaters or give them pet names, you know, but it doesn't require loving animals to find the torture of animals abhorrent. I don't love pigs, but I don't want to see a pregnant pig kept in a cage so small she can't turn around. Like you don't have to love them. You just have to, it's a kind of baseline human decency that I think is truly universal. I think it requires a kind of extreme act of repression not to care about, for example, someone kicking a dog. What would we call somebody who is indifferent to that? We'd call them like a psychopath. 
And this has really been shown out in polls. 96% of Americans want for animals to have legal protection against unnecessary cruelty. I mean, can you think of anything, anything that that many Americans agree on? I don't think that many Americans agree that there's gravity, you know? <laughs> um, but of course we do, because it's just a fundamental human value. It's like right. not wanting to die. We're like, of course. In terms of the effects on human health, there's no way of looking at factory farm meat in the quantities that we eat it that's positive. So there are plenty of ways of looking at meat as a healthy part of one's diet. Right. And I think people who argue against that are being a little bit disingenuous. But that's not what we're talking about. It's not, a, it's not like a philosophical experiment again. Right. And there's the ways that we live. We eat 180 times as much chicken per person as we do, did a century ago. This is fucking obscene amounts of meat. You know, it's not normal. We've just been told a story that it's normal. China has just decided to limit meat production or meat consumption. So they've set new dietary guidelines to reduce meat consumption by half right. in the next 10 years or so, which is a pretty Huge. radical yeah. idea. And a lot of American celebrities um, like Schwarzenegger or James Cameron have gone over there to do PSAs trying to encourage people to eat less meat. And this is all, I should say, purely on environmental grounds. That's that's the only perspective that they're taking right. when they want to reduce meat consumption. Yeah. So I, I don't imagine they'll do it, and I don't even know to what extent it's sincere. But the fact that it's even out there is really radical. And you know, I think that there are issues in culture and society that people really do care about, but where the care is not yet visible. I was thinking about this a lot when the Me Too movement started to explode. I assume that most reasonable people think and have thought that sexual misconduct is bad. It's not good to treat people in a way, to treat people in, in your workplace or elsewhere where they're made to feel sexually uncomfortable. And yet nobody ever talked about it. And nobody right. did much of anything about it. And then there was an artifact released into the culture, which was the New York Times and New Yorker articles at, at about the same time, that suddenly unleashed all of this latent care. I think we have the same thing with food and we're waiting for an artifact for a kind of moment of tipping when these values that I think are, if not universally shared, then very, very widely shared can be made visible. Not to blow this up to the point of impossible abstraction, but it seems to me that the idea of scaling in general, scaling up in our culture that starts with the Industrial Revolution and maybe, you know, gains momentum with Ford and, and so on, you know, and then has its new iteration in Silicon Valley, that the extent to which we buy into that and we allow that to kind of be the momentum of our culture that that creates a lot of these problems. I mean, separating us from one another, separating us from from our food, separating us from having to look at things that we actually might care about and making it possible to not say something when you feel something. Yeah, I agree. And this is, that's no small part of what makes this really exciting, actually. Like this is a great, great way to opt out. You know, it's so powerful right. and it's so easy to say like, I reject this. You know, it's, it's not easy to reject your telephone, your cell phone rather, which right. I wish I could do, but I hate it. I hate the control that it has over me. I hate what it does to my attention. I hate what it's done to the ways that I communicate with people. I think it is one of the five worst things that has happened to my life, <laughs> literally. 
You've said you you don't use social media. Is that still true? Are it's you... true, not because I made any kind of like. I saw tro- it somewhere online. I just kind of missed that. it somehow. I don't know. I don't remember it ever being a choice. But with my phone, I wish I had more. Whatever it takes, will. I find it very, very hard to opt out of using a phone. What are you doing on your phone? Googling, emailing people? What are you, what are yeah, you, what, emailing, what's texting, tagging, looking at something? Just whatever, yeah. reading <laughs> news that isn't important to me. Yeah, yeah. But with food, I feel like we have much more latitude to opt out. And it can feel wonderful in its own right because of what we know are the effects of eating differently. Right. And it can feel wonderful as a symbol as well, like a kind of reclaiming of independence or reclaiming of a kind of just empowerment, you know, that I am more powerful than the system and we are more powerful than the system. Every time this conversation opens up, there are a million different problems that people introduce. And some of these are smoke screens and some of them aren't like, okay, being a pescatarian is one option, but then you do, apparently there is an extreme amount of detail that you can get into with respect to like where your fish are coming from and what is being overfished and how fish farms are run and maybe they are also polluting the environment horribly. I mean, people find themselves going down these cul-de-sacs and maybe they're just a way to continue doing whatever they're already doing. But You know, I, what I would say is why are we like addressing the final step rather than the first step? It's definitely better to reduce the amount of meat that we eat. Uh-huh. Like people who reduce it a little tiny bit. If someone says, I eat 21 meals a week and I've decided to make one of them vegetarian, I would say, that's cool. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> Especially because once you open up your willingness to care about something, right. that space expands. It doesn't contract. Like people who start to care, care more over time. You know, we're so obsessed with hypocrisy that we forget that a little bit of inconsistency and hypocrisy is so much better than like excusing ourselves from the conversation. I I feel like that impulse against hypocrisy, that sort of skeptical reaction is often a reactionary move, sometimes just unconsciously given, but sometimes deliberately given as a way to basically confuse the argument and create a smokescreen. I think that's probably true, but I have a lot of sympathy for it also. Like it's something that I will do. It's effective. Like it does get the conversation off the track. You know, know, if someone says to me, hey, I've heard that um, that veggie burger you're eating is responsible for X, Y, and Z, I would say, you know, I guess I'd like to know more about that. Yeah. Like, who knows? Maybe that will make me stop wanting to eat them. Maybe, or maybe I could just say, you know what? That's really interesting to me, but I just don't have the like mental bandwidth right now. Right. I'm doing the best I can. Here are changes that I've made in my life. Here are changes I can imagine doing one day. So for example, I'm not a vegan. I'm a vegetarian. I think if one is to follow the kind of line of argument, insofar as there even is a line of argument in my book, it would suggest that the conclusion is veganism. There's no difference in the ways that eggs are made or or milk is produced. All, All of the arguments that apply to meat apply at least as well to Eggs. Eggs mm-hmm. are probably the cruelest of all kind of animal products. Right, right. Well, so why don't I reject those as well? But I mean, following the lines of argument in your book, one could eat meat, just eat it only from small yeah. farm producers. Yeah, too, yeah so. that's maybe why I, I yeah. was resistant to even say there's a line of argument. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's more like a, a directed conversation. But um, I am just a hypocrite. Like, <laughs> I, I find it hard. 
I find it really hard. I find it hard with two kids. Like I know other people who find it simple and they say to me, like, how can you not find it simple? I don't know. I just find it hard. Yeah. And when somebody says to me, I can't feel full unless I eat meat for dinner. Right. Okay. I have to believe you. So can you not eat it for lunch? Can you not eat it for breakfast? Are there, can you eat less meat for dinner? Instead of picking apart right. the person that we're talking to, if there were a way to find the shared values right. and together work toward like nudging ourselves toward the, being reflections of those values. There's something I think about here, which is, you know, a very, seems to me, Jewish impulse. Like I think of my paternal grandmother, that's the Jewish side of my family, which is the like, don't go crazy. You have to live. You, you have to think about these things, but you also shouldn't be a, a nut trying to, um, I don't know, leave a little space for life itself and the complexity of life as well. So there are a couple ways to think about that. The extreme way would be, well, we, don't, we would never apply that to something like murder or rape. Right. Like, hey, you want to have sex with this person? Like, come on, it's enough. Just have sex with the person. Like, come on. No, we say it's wrong. Right. It's categorically wrong. Right. Don't do it. That's it's right. wrong. And then we can do the whole like, hey, it's enough with the things where it's, it's more ambiguous or the stakes aren't as high. Right. Here we're talking about life and death, literally. And we're talking about the destruction of the planet, literally. So- I understand somebody. I am not Some this absolute, person. absolute absolutist yes, argument. That kind of like fundamentalism. You know, from a certain angle, it's not a philosophical debate at all. You are taking a living thing, especially in the case of some of these farmers, you know, in your book and in the in the movie who clearly love animals, who are then slaughtering them and yeah, and making that moral calculus like it's worth it because there has to be a business to keep this heritage turkey alive or whatever. It's complex. It's, it's, it's very, very complex. You know, I have two kids and I knew that they were going to die one day. I am not killing them, but I brought them into life knowing that they will die. And that's right. there is a real difference, but it doesn't make the analogy worthless, you know? But my other response to that sort of Jewish grandmotherly attitude is, yes, I agree. Like a little flexibility is okay. I also agree that it's a good thing to acknowledge one's like, humanity, which includes having cravings, which includes wanting certain kinds of comforts or wanting to celebrate in certain ways. And it also includes being inconsistent and fallible. But that doesn't mean we need to do that in every situation. So right. yes, I'm at this like Michelin star restaurant on my anniversary. I'm going to have the whatever. But that has nothing to do with the like turkey sandwich that you get as you're running to your gate in the airport. So again, if That's we could right. make a real clear distinction between the times when it matters, when we might say like, okay, I'm a human being, and, a, and the times when it doesn't matter, when we should simply say, I'm not going to do it. It may be true that everything we do is bad to some extent, but it's not true that everything is bad to the same extent. Right. I think this is a good place for us to pivot extremely in a, possibly a very different direction. For the audience, this is the part of the show where... Jonathan and I will watch surprise clips chosen from Big Think's archives. They could be on any subject, and I haven't seen them, and he hasn't. Are, are you ready for this totally different I direction? I couldn't possibly be more ready. Okay, cool. <laughs> Famous last words. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is a cognitive scientist, Joshua Bach, and the video is called Why the Days of Addictive Tech Are Numbered. We can only hope. I remember when the first search engines came around. And back then, Alta Vista was a very big thing. Alta Vista tried to strike a balance between the inconveniences in terms of advertising and so on. It could put on the user and the utility it had for the user. So it would, for instance, mix search results with advertising. And at this point, Google came along. Google was very small and inconsequential, and nobody really took it seriously. But it did an amazing thing. It did give people exactly what they wanted. It gave them a pretty much ad-free experience. It gave them exactly the search results that they wanted, the best ones, closest ones to what people wanted to have. And Google dramatically outperformed AltaVista. AltaVista disappeared. Um, that was an amazing insight to see that if you are in a dramatically scalable economy like the internet, where you have the biggest amount of competition that you can possibly have, you need to build a product that is optimally aligned with the interests of the users, unless you manage to get some kind of monopoly and can drive out all the competition. And so when we build new products in that space, we have to think about how to build the most useful product, not necessarily just the product that is going to make the biggest amount of money, um, that is going to have the most efficient business model in some sense, or the best business case. Eventually, it's going to be the product that is getting the most use by people. And people will find out that they will use most what is most useful to them. In the long run, that's going to be the stuff that is not addictive, that is hygienic, that serves their actual needs, that makes them more happy and fulfilled. And right now, we mostly build applications that utilize the cravings of people, that make them addicted. People start checking their smartphones every few seconds to see if a new email arrived, but this new email is not going to make them more happy and fulfilled. This, instead, it drags uh, away their attention. So I believe the next big movement in how we build technical systems will be hygienic technology. It will be how to build systems that is careful with our attention, how we use it, and that is careful with our way of living and what we want to achieve with the tools that we are building. Um, so I'm cynical enough to think that that's not true at all. The statement that he made about people will use what is most useful to them. I mean, alcohol, drugs, I mean, you know, we, we have a very long history of using things. I mean, and, and what do you mean by useful as well? Useful. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I mean, <laughs> it's useful to get the little dopamine hit. Obviously, yeah. our brain wants that. Nobody is forcing us to check our phones. We do it because it offers the usefulness, not of a communication that we needed, but a little dopamine hit that we needed. I unfortunately think it's he's not only wrong, he's like dead wrong. <laughs> and that we are going to move further and further away from something that's useful in the sense that he's describing, which is um, maybe like significant is a better word than useful, things that offer significance. Right. And more and more toward things that we believe we need 
or we feel that we need. You know, that's what Google is the sort of exemplar of. We don't need to answer the questions or most of the questions that we ask of Google, and we don't necessarily need the kinds of answers that it gives. We were talking earlier about squirmy moral decisions. There is none squirmier for me than what to do with my kid and technology. Where are you at with that? You have two children, yeah? Mm -hmm. How old is your kid? So he's 10. And I have to say that at this point, you know, I'm just going to out myself. I mean, we're terrible with regard to the, the digital space. I mean, mm. he watches YouTube videos and, you know, we have control filters and stuff, but there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of barriers. I guess, I, you know, I, I, I try to be responsive to who my kids are over time and how different activities change who they are mm. for the better or the worse, mm. or maybe those aren't quite the right adjectives, but... I think much like the conversation about meat, moving toward binaries just isn't really helpful and it's not it's not responding to the way the world actually works. Like having a no screen household I don't think is a good thing. I don't think it makes sense. I mean, you can do it if you want, but I'm not sure how much sense it makes to say, okay, you can watch two hours on this day and three hours out of the context of whatever else the kid is, the child is doing with their time. You know, I would, I would love to raise children who don't want to sit in front of a screen all day. And that to me is the trick, like setting constraints. First of all, it's only possible when they're with you. Right. And are they learning not to want it or are they just losing access to it? Are they and, learning to want it more? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think what is the way to create a healthy relationship with it? Because ultimately they will spend their lives inside of technology in ways we can't even begin to imagine now and outside of my house. So it's a, it's a little bit like an instrument. My kids are not going to become professional musicians. I, it's not looking like it. And I don't care how good they become at the violin and piano. I do care about like arming them with the ability to shoot, to get excited about things and to make choices on their own behalves. Right. And... There's something arbitrary about saying you should practice 30 minutes a day, just as there's something arbitrary about saying you shouldn't use a screen for more than 30 minutes a day. But in a way, those decisions are in the same spirit of trying to figure out the right amounts and, and qualities of exposure to different things in the world so that they can make good choices on their own behalves. I mean, for me, often it comes down to giving other options of things to do. Because if I give him, you know, if it's not like, here's a book and here's the screen, he'll choose the screen. However, if we go to a farm where he can run around and hang out with animals, he loves that. So, I mean, if, I get, if one is able to fill his life with such experiences or at least the option of them, then... So maybe that's a burden that, like, we are taking on when we take on technologies, you know, like these, that if we are allowing one into our life, we have to create space for the other. Mm -hmm. My parents didn't have to negotiate, you know, certainly not things like phones or the internet with us. So they didn't have the same burden of having to create alternatives. No, TV was the big specter. Yeah. But, but Actually, we, I mean, when I was a kid, we just watched unlimited amounts of TV. <laughs> my older brother and I, I don't know how we even made it into adulthood, <laughs> much less became, you know, fairly competent. But 
um, yeah, we just watched like an unlimited amount of TV. My parents worked really hard. They would come home on the later side. And lots of garbage, probably. It was all there was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Maybe may all there is. It's funny, my dad once said, some, somebody asked him, my, my two brothers are also writers. Yeah. And the person said, like, how did you raise three writers? How did that happen? And my dad said, you know, it's very easy to just fuck up your kids. <laughs> and I didn't fuck them up. And that's what I'm proud of. And I, th- I thought about that a lot as a parent, you know, especially in a place like New York. We're so used to thinking of parenting as being creating opportunities and additions to life mm. as opposed to not creating problems and right. negatives. And um, I have felt a movement in my own parenting from the kind of like hypervigilance to something more laissez-faire. Like I want my kids to be warm and good people. And that is a process. It's not an event. And it's also easier for them to internalize warmth and goodness if their main contact with you is about feeling welcome mm-hmm. as opposed to feeling forbidden to do things. Yeah, that, the, my, that my, <laughs> my instinct is that they will make good choices, not that they will make bad choices. Right. That they will be valued for who they are rather than implicitly punished for who they might be right, or might become. That's a hard one. I mean, I have, I certainly have in me from my, you know, very strict Italian-American mom, like the, uh, the other side of the family, you know, that's a very strong impulse, at least in me to say, ah, this crazy thing you're watching on YouTube is no good. Stop it at once, you know. That may be, but maybe there's a way to not have that be something that you <laughs> say, but something that you provoke, you know, like... What is it that you like? Can we can we just talk about that? Like, right, what are you right, watching? Right. Can we talk about right, it? Like, right. can I tell you how it makes me feel? Like, I'm not suggesting you should feel, but to me, it makes me like scared. I don't. Like, it makes me sad. Like, I don't like watching people fail. Right. It just doesn't. It make, doesn't make me happier. Right. It makes me laugh, just like it makes you laugh. I get that. I totally get it. But it doesn't leave me in a place that feels happier or more fulfilled, and it often leaves me feeling guilty. Like I just spent some of my finite time on earth celebrating somebody else's failure. It's just not, it's not how I want to spend a lot of my time. Maybe a little bit of my time. So I think, and this is... I think, by the way, if you want to go into a sideline of parent counseling, you know, if the the (laughs) novel writing, you know, ceases to be fulfilling at some point. It ceased to be fulfilling a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I, you know, I like talking about this stuff because I worry about it. And I'm so uncertain about it. And I like hearing other people's experiences. And, you know, as a parent, unless this is kind of the truth with anything, unless you have a context for thinking about something and having feelings about something, you tend not to have thoughts and feelings, right? Right. So, you know, if you are not having a conversation about parenting, you tend to only be responsive to what's in front of you rather than having a more sort of deliberate engagement with the subject. Right. And it's why the contexts that we're in matter so much. Like, you know, if I walk into a Gothic cathedral, I will have a certain quality of thought and feeling, generally speaking. If I walk into a McDonald's, I have a different quality of thought and feeling. Different friends offer different contexts for different kinds of thoughts and feelings. And um, I was so moved, actually, when I used to when I was in college, after college, I lived in Queens for a couple of years. I had just like the dumpiest, most thoughtless um, living spaces. And I used to kind of poo-poo people who cared about 
that stuff at all. Right. You were a monkish writer focused yeah. on the writing and or whatever I was yeah, doing. Yeah, yeah. And then I went to in sort of quick succession, Scandinavia and Japan. And those are places where a lot of thought is given to living spaces. Uh. And one of the things I realized was this isn't about like materialism and it's not about beauty exactly. It's about creating context for a certain kind of life. And a thoughtful environment will encourage a thoughtful life more than a thoughtless environment will. And you know what's true of physical spaces is true of friendships and is true of conversations and is true of parenting too. Like Within that, what makes parenting, I think, so difficult or contemporary parenting so difficult is that there, there are not a lot of open spaces where people talk in a relaxed way about these kinds of things. People have very strong opinions and they voice them in pretty strong ways. I mean, unless you have trusted friends and they, you know. Yeah, I mean, think about <laughs> how much media there is about sports. You know, conversations about where LeBron should go next year, which <laughs> right. by the way, like I also absolutely love indulging, but where are the conversations about where kids should go next year. Where in Brooklyn do you live? Do you live in Park Slope? Prospect Park Slope. Okay, South. okay. So near enough, right? Yeah. And if you've ever eavesdropped on Park Slope parents' listserv, which I have, you know, things get real shrill real quick. As is the conversation about... Sports. Well, meat, meat is what I was going to say. <laughs> or gun control or immigration. I mean, the fact that it veers toward a kind of shrillness is really only suggestive of how much people care and that they haven't found a good way to talk about it yet. Like when I, as has happened to me many times, if I'm when I was giving readings from eating animals, someone might stand up and you know at the question and answer session say, "Who do you think you are?" And you think you know this, but da 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 da. And I would say, "Well, it's obvious that we agree that this matters. Like <laughs> you wouldn't be so pissed off if you didn't care a lot. If I were up here saying to everybody." you should buy this brand of paper towel instead of this other one. And here are all of my reasons. Nobody would stand up and say, who do you think you are? Right. They might just get bored or walk away or dismiss me. The way that certain conversations inspire big responses and big emotions, it's just a reminder of how important they are. I think that's right. But so then you were talking about the importance of context. And the question is then... What are the contexts in which we're able to create, like, I'm not saying where everyone is just going like rah-rah, everything you are doing is perfect, but where we're able to create safe spaces for debate and discussion. Yeah, and also different contexts work for different people. So yeah, there yeah. actually are people for whom this Park Slope parents thing works. There are people who have those conversations with friends. There are people who have those conversations with therapists. There are people who yeah, have yeah. those conversations with the books that they're reading. Oh, that's right, too. That's right, too. Well, thank you for your book and for the documentary, which I think is opening up this conversation in a very useful way for people. I really hope so. In spite of all of the big, bold, terrifying, and definitive things going on in the world all the time, conversations really do matter, especially when we listen to each other as opposed to just finding different ways to assert what we already believe to be the case. It's not easy. Like Jonathan said, it's a process, not an event. Anyway, that wraps up Think Again for this week. If you want to continue the conversation with us, come find us on Facebook at Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. And feel free to drop me a line at jason at bigthink.com. And we'll be back next week with something completely different. 
and I hope you can join us.